Have you heard something of this saying? If you want to bring change, don't waste your time trying to change people. Instead, change the people. Uh, It's easier starting again, starting from scratch to bring change than staying with the old group because change is so hard. So if your workplace won't change, well, it's just easier, isn't it, to quit your job and go and get a new one than to hang around waiting for change. If church won't change, it's easier to find a new one or, or to go and start a new one then stay with a church stuck in its ways. It's really hard to bring change. Uh, We're looking at Genesis, the first book in the Bible, uh, and and today it's uh, from the beginning of chapter 6 and all the way through to the end of chapter 9, and it's Noah and the Flood, uh, a story that you're probably more familiar with from the kids' books than from the actual Bible. Uh, We've seen so far, though, in the book of Genesis, that life outside the garden, it's bad. Uh, Last week, if you were here, we we looked at chapter 4, where Cain kills his brother Abel out there in the paddock. It, It was jealousy, anger, hatred, murder. And then there was the multiplication of anger in that bloke, Lamech, who was proving his manhood by not taking one wife but two and then bragging to them how tough he was uh, and about who he would kill if someone just touched him. Uh, In chapter 6, if you can believe it, it's going to become a whole lot worse. Uh, Last week, by the end of chapter 4, the people begin to call on the name of the Lord. In the next chapter, chapter 5, we're told of that bloke, Enoch, who walks with God, but by Genesis chapter 6, sin has spread and it is ruining absolutely everything. It's even going beyond the human realm, it would seem. I was down at the Begara under sixes soccer training this week, just gone, uh, having a go at coaching. It's very serious down there at the under sixes. Uh, One of the kids came to me asking for justice. Uh, during training, another kid had grabbed his wrist and pulled on it, I guess to get him away from the ball or, or, or something, and hurt him a little bit. It was nothing too serious, you'll pl- be pleased to know. But the kid that was hurt, he wanted to know what I was going to do about it. And rightly so. Uh, Soccer is a non-contact sport. I'm pretty sure that's right. I'm not fully familiar with the rules. Um, <laughs> And this is under sixes anyway, so we want to be caring for each other, don't we? Uh, you imagine the under sixes soccer training session descending into a game of, of rugby. Very soon it could become a, a great mess. Something needed to be done. Uh, boys and girls, this is not a contact sport. You, you're not to grab on each other's arms. In Genesis chapter 6, something needs to be done. And, and it's not comical. Change needs to happen. Let's just look at the situation uh, together for a little while. Chapter 6, it begins, you notice, with the baby boom, uh, that creation mandate that God gave humanity to to be fruitful and multiply. It's being fulfilled. But sin wrecks this activity. Uh, The sons of God, we read in verse 2, are marrying human women. 
and God does not approve. You see verse 3, I'll read. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Uh, Who are the sons of God? They're probably heavenly beings. So there's there's a crossing of boundaries between heaven and earth in some sense human sin has spread so far and and so wide as we get to chapter six its reach now extends beyond the human realm to impact heavenly beings mixed marriages between human and and heavenly beings it explains what follows in verse three and four the, these mixed couples if they're to have children it's possible their kids might be able to avoid human limitation, length of life, verse 3, size and strength, verse 4. Is that why God limits the length of human life in verse 3? Whatever's going on, God looks at it, and in contrast to chapter 1 and chapter 2, where he looks at his creation and says, good, good, very good. Here it is not good. You see verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. This is humanity out of control. That's the picture that we're getting here in Genesis chapter 6. Things are as bad as bad can be a whole lot worse than down at soccer on Wednesday afternoon. Sin has spoiled everything by now in God's good worlds. It's often called total depravity. It's not that humanity can't do good things, but even the good things we sometimes manage to do are, are so mixed with sinful motives. Something has to be done. How does God respond to sin? Well, there's four things I reckon it's worth us observing from this. Firstly, notice verse 6. I'll read. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. It's It's really striking language, isn't it? How can God regret The almighty God who knows the beginning from the end. If God knew it was going to go all wrong, why make us in the first place? It raises so many questions, doesn't it? What is God really like? How does God relate to to his creation? Is he like the hard-headed owner of a business? If he knew the employees were going to be rubbish, he wouldn't have put them on in the first place. Or is he like a loving parent whose heart breaks when their children make dumb choices and their life goes to mess? Like a loving parent trying to settle their sick toddler in the middle of the night, thinking, why did we ever have children? knowing full well we'd do it all over again. God isn't like the owner of a business that's gone wrong. In fact, he does reveal himself in the Bible, doesn't he, as a loving parent. 
He chooses to create humanity with the full knowledge of our rebellion against him, our rejection of him. He makes us knowing that he's going to have to die for us. And see, God's response to sin, it's not just regret. His heart is deeply troubled. And if you're into systematic theology and you think, well, God doesn't have affections, God's not a person, this just does your head in. God feels things deeply. He's affected by what you and I do. That's what the text is saying. In some sense, the text is saying you have the ability to break God's heart. There's something wonderfully mysterious about that. God cares about your actions towards him and towards others. That's the first response to sin. Over sin, God's heart breaks. The second response to sin from God, we see verse 7, God judges sin. He says, uh, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, for I am grieved that I have made them. There's no sidestepping the fact that God is angry at sin and sinful people. The Bible's very clear on this. God is not indifferent to sin. Sin must be acted against. Sin must be judged. And actually, sometimes we might ask why God doesn't act sooner than he does as we live with the effects of the sin of others. Look at verse 11 to 13 with me there. I'll read. Um, It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And you notice the repetition, don't you, of corrupt, corrupt. Everything on earth is a mess. The earth full of violence. Humanity is fixed on self-destruction. It's a chaotic picture. Everyone for themselves, something must be done. And God responds to sin with with judgment. And as New Testament believers, we we know there's the the judgment to come. But also notice with me, God intervenes to save the world by choosing one man, Noah. Responding to sin, God's heart breaks. He brings judgment, a third response to sin from God, grace. Chapter 6, verse 8, we read, But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Favour can be translated, you may know, as grace. We like to say grace a lot round here, don't we? And this grace, this favour, notice, it comes before Noah is presented as righteous in verse 9. It does not read, Noah earned God's favour. But Noah found God's 
favour. It, it was given to him, gifted to him, grace. Martin Luther said, sinners are lovely. Why? Because they are loved. Sinners are lovely because they are loved. They are not loved because they are lovely. God's grace is, is also seen, you notice, in the making of a covenant with Noah, verse 17 and 18. The Lord says, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? Most of humanity uh, uh, and land and creatures wiped out, but God doesn't write off the human race. He stays committed, and you notice in doing so, he risks the pain of this happening again, all over again. This is just the sixth chapter in the Bible. Now, I wonder if you can identify with this at, at all. Uh, you put all of the effort into some relationship, and it's just not returned, it's not reciprocated. You're the one who makes the phone calls. I better call such and such, you think. I wonder how they're, they're going. And you make the call, but they never do it for you. And you're the one who arranges the catch-ups, the coffee and the whatever else. And after a while, you're just sick of doing all the work. You feel hurt and unloved. It's all one-sided. And you end up just wanting to ditch the relationship. Do you see how... God is a bit like the friend who moves towards friendship, the one who makes the phone calls and, and organises the catch-ups. And you're the friend who doesn't respond. But God doesn't write you off, at least not yet. <laughs> he puts himself out there to be hurt and heartbroken over and over and over and over again, and we see this as the narrative progresses. After the flood, God promises to never send a, a flood like that that destroys the earth, even though the human race has failed to trust God's good word and so, in so doing ruined his world. And he gives a sign of the covenant in, in chapter 9, verse 12 to 13, the rainbow. And having saved Noah and his family and all the creatures he took on the ark, God starts all over again. God responds to sin by committing to start over with one man. Maybe this is the, first, the fourth point in, in this talk. God responds to sin by committing to start over with one man. Up until Genesis chapter 6, whenever God commands humans to do anything, Adam and Eve in the garden, Cain with Abel, they've all disobeyed. But Noah did all God commanded him to do. Chapter 6, verse 22, he does. Chapter 7, verse 5, he walks in obedience. Chapter 7, verse 9, he obeys God. Chapter 7, verse 16, he does what the Lord commands him to do. Noah, unlike the rest, actually trusts 
God's good word. And just to show that God starts all over again after the flood, we have the repeated blessing and role that he gave humans back in chapter 1. Except it's chapter 9 now. Chapter 9, verse 1, God tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Chapter 9, verse 2, he commands Noah to rule the earth. Chapter 9, verse 3, God gives Noah everything, including fish, birds, and animals to eat. But there's a twist to the story. After the flood... Noah grows some grapes and makes some wine. He gets drunk. He lies naked in his tent. His son Ham sees his dad naked and he he tells his two brothers. His brothers go inside the tent and they, they cover Noah's nakedness. And when Noah wakes up from sleeping off the effects of too much to drink, he curses Ham. What's going on here? It's a seedy episode in which Ham violates his dad somehow. What's going on while Noah starts well? Nothing has changed. It's Change is so hard to bring about, isn't it? Here we go again. It's so hard to bring change. Noah, like everyone else, becomes part of the problem instead of the solution to the problem of sin. Noah, like every other man and woman before and since, breaks God's heart. Something must be done. But God is determined to change people instead of change the people. He doesn't write us off, at least not yet but is lovingly committed to humanity, to you and me. I think we had a fourth point, but this is the fourth point, isn't it? Uh, God starts again with one man. Uh, The one man who resists temptation, unlike Adam and Eve, who dies to save his brother, unlike Cain, and who perfectly obeys God, unlike Noah, the one man, Jesus. But for Jesus to save you from the consequence of sin, so you can have a fresh start, God's heart must be broken because of God's anger at sin and God's judgment on sin, God's punishment for sin. It's all placed upon him. And the amazing thing is God won't force you to accept Jesus. He just invites you to come. But how can you resist? The almighty, loving, creator God putting himself out there yet again. Pursuing relationship yet again. And all you need to do is believe that God was willing for his heart to be broken at the cross. For your sin that breaks his heart. 
so that your sinful heart can be changed and you can belong to him. Now, can I just say, if you're someone who already trusts in Jesus, even though you've been saved, it is still possible, isn't it, for you to grieve God. It's possible still for you to cause him heartache. In Ephesians 4 verse 30, we see that the Holy Spirit grieves when we act in ways that damages relationships with fellow believers. Whether it be your bad temper or hanging on to hurts, the verbal put-downs or telling lies, it's that kind of behaviour that breaks God's heart because it destroys relationships and it ruins God's good world. It ruins the recreation activity that he's doing among his people. The Spirit grieves when we act in those ways because Christ died to reconcile us to him, yes, but also to each other. So that his love for you, a love so great that his heart was broken for you, breaks down the barriers, mends the broken relationships and heals the wounds. It's really hard to bring change, hey? It's easier to just move on. But the loving God of the Bible doesn't do that with us. Again and again and again, he shows us his love in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, trust and follow me for our good and his glory. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus. Uh, Lord, as we look at the the mess of the world in Genesis chapter 6, we recognise that it is the mess of our world here and now. Uh, A world made by you, a people created by you, yet we haven't trusted your good word. Uh, Lord, for this we're sorry. And we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your promises to us, that you're a promise-making God and a a promise-keeping God. We thank you for the rainbow, a reminder that there won't be another flood like that. And we thank you for the cross, a reminder that our sin is dealt with, that while sin breaks your heart in in some sense, Lord, it's very hard for us to get a handle on what that looks like. That while sin breaks your heart, you are willing to be broken in our place that we might be forgiven and restored and connected to you. Lord, help us live for you and we pray that your love for us would so transform us that we would have a, a deepening love for each other, a robust love for each other, that we would bear with each other in love, that we would love each other in creative ways, that we would forgive 
that as we enjoy you, we would enjoy your people and that you would continue to mould and shape us in your recreating activity by your spirit for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.